Good morning. The Laurel Heights Church of Christ has been here a long time. From the first assembly of this group, the purpose has been to read, to study, and to follow what the Bible says. So every time we are here, we open the Bible and we listen to what God has said. The idea is to leave here each time intending to put into practice what God has said ought to be in our lives. Today, I want to begin by reading a group of passages that convey the same theme, and you will observe that theme just as soon as we read the text. That theme will take us to our topic for today. Are you ready? Psalm chapter 7 and verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Romans 11 and verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. <clears throat> Colossians 3, 5 and 6, you heard earlier this morning. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now these statements of Scripture speak to us today <clears throat> about the wrath of God. I want us to talk about that. The wrath of God is not like the typical unjustified anger of men and women. It is not impulsive, it is not immature, it is not uninformed. The wrath of God actually comes from His holiness. Here's a good way to understand this. When God, with His absolute moral purity, looks down upon men and women who live in sin, He is displeased. He is offended. And He cares about people ruining their lives. The Bible says God is slow to anger, and in His mercy He is willing to forgive, but because of who God is, He cannot be neutral about sin, and is not. He is a God who feels indignation every day. God is perfectly good and holy. From that holiness comes His daily indignation over the sins of man. And that daily indignation is expressed by the Holy Spirit all through Scripture by this phrase, the wrath of God. 
For many people in the religious world today, this has become an inconvenient truth. It doesn't fit their personally conceived image of God. Those who live in the secular world with no respect for God do not care how God feels about evil. Many in the religious world, even if they understand that there is evil, do not want to be vocal about the wrath of God. There is a tendency to speak freely of God's love, but dismiss or shy away from the clear statements in the Bible of God's wrath against sin. It is not an issue for faithful Christians. We are convinced of both the goodness and severity of God. We want our view or image of God to be just as it is written in Scripture. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. We take that seriously. The wrath of God against sin. Now, we could stop here, but you know me. What do we do with this truth? More than just an acknowledgement of it, reading the passages, maybe even memorizing some of them, what do we do with this truth? In addition to the acknowledgement of it, is there anything I need to do or that you need to do in response to this truth that is so clearly expressed all through Scripture? I believe there is. <clears throat> the truth about God's wrath leads to something that applies to me and to you and every Christian. It is sometimes called righteous indignation or moral outrage. And here's what that is about. When God is upset, His people ought to be upset. When God is displeased by a certain behavior, His people ought to be displeased about it. When God is angry, His people ought to be angry. Behavior that provokes the wrath of God, I cannot engage in. Neither can I tolerate it <clears throat> or make light of it. I want to speak to us today of what I'm going to call moral outrage. That should characterize our reaction to sin. And I have three specific examples of what provokes God's wrath, the Bible says so, and therefore should cause outrage in His people. Abortion. Here's where we are in our society. It is very common to hear messages such as this. Don't drink while pregnant. Don't smoke if you're carrying a baby. And these messages are called prenatal care. And it sounds like everybody is concerned that there are mothers carrying babies. 
And because of that precious human cargo, be careful about your diet, your habits. Be careful about what you consume. Even Planned Parenthood publishes brochures about good prenatal care. Yet, in some cases, from the same people who preach good prenatal care, there is permission to kill that baby. At a minimum, we have here a mixed message. Beyond that, what we have is hypocritical, and at the core, what we have is evil. We cannot forget it directly rebels against God's definition of life. In Psalms 139, I'm going to start at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David speaks to God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Have I told you this story? A worried woman went to her doctor and said, Doctor, I have a serious problem and desperately need your help. My baby is not even one year old. She was holding her one year old. She said, my baby is not even one year old and I'm pregnant again. And I don't want kids so close together. So the doctor said, okay, what do you want me to do? And she said, I want you to end my pregnancy. And I'm counting on your help with that. The doctor thought for a little, and after some silence, he said to the lady, I think I have a better solution for your problem. It's less dangerous for you, too. And she smiled, thinking the doctor was going to accept her request. And then he continued, You see, in order for you not to have to take care of two babies at the same time, let's kill the one in your arms. This way, you could rest some before the other one is born. If we're going to kill one of them, it doesn't matter which one it is. There would be no risk for your body if you chose the one in your arms to die. And the lady was horrified. She said, no, doctor, how terrible. It's a crime to kill a child. I agree, the doctor replied. But you seem to be okay with it. So I thought maybe that was the best solution. 
The doctor smiled, realizing that he'd made his point. He convinced the mom that there is no difference in killing a child that's already been born and one that's still in the womb. God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Proverbs chapter 6. May we never take any steps away from our moral outrage about abortion. <clears throat> Sometimes this subject seems to have a connection with something else. Sexual immorality. The way to approach this subject from biblical terms is to start with a very simple truth from the Creator that God puts sexual activity in marriage. It is a beautiful experience between husband and wife who have come together under God to form a family. Hebrews 13.5 states this in very simple terms. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And then it says, anticipating human corruption, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, is, is that capable of being understood? It is from God, it expresses His will, it is written in simple terms, God puts sexual activity in marriage. And then concerning marriage, what Jesus spoke has equal clarity and simplicity. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Matthew 19.9 Again, the law of God is stated. But in that statement there is an anticipation of human corruption. See, on these matters... God was and is clear in stating what ought to be and expressing his disapproval of sexual immorality. And yet here we are in a society where what God has been clear about, men and women have ignored and resisted and laughed about to their own ruin. The biblical view of sex is not just considered outdated, it is not even considered at all. Paul describes the situation of chosen depravity in his time, and it reads like a commentary of our time, where he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Do you, do you remember how the verse started? How the passage began? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Something, something beautiful in its place has been consumed and promoted and celebrated outside of where God put it. It has become a party favor, a means of mass entertainment, something that brings physical pleasure, but without commitment of heart. Where is our outrage. It needs to be in line with God. Personal confession. I'm prejudiced against the alcohol industry for two reasons. One, what I've read, and two, what I've seen. Let me start with what I've seen. I've seen people die a very slow death after years of consuming alcohol, in most cases well aware that with each drink they're closer to death. I've seen people with dysfunctional bodies, handicapped, innocent victims of a drunk driver. I've seen marriages come to an end. I've seen children hurt, churches hurt by intoxication. That's what I've seen, and I suspect you have seen all of that too. But I want to tell you now what I've read. In fact, I'm not just going to tell you what I've read. I'm going to read to you what I've read. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine? Those who go to try mixed wine? Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of the mast 
They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. That's what I've read. In Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. That's what I've read. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's what I've read. And Ephesians 5.18 And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's what I've read. Given what God has said, how do you think He feels about intoxication? And how do you feel about it? Last Monday night, I want to tell you what happened. In the Houston area, a little place called Tomball, Texas, the Decker Prairie Church of Christ, good, sound, local church. And the four elders there met on Monday night to talk about their responsibilities and talk about the local work and what needed to be done. And among those four elders, there was a man by the name of Waylon Melton, 60 years old. At 8.30 Monday night, they completed their meeting, and these four elders went to the parking lot, <clears throat> got into their vehicles, and Waylon Melton was the first one to pull out of the parking lot. And when he pulled out of the parking lot, he was hit broadside and he died right there in front of those other elders. Hit by a drunk driver. Now I want to suggest... If you think there is a case to be made for intoxication, I'm not talking about a cough syrup argument here. If you think there is a case to be made for intoxication, I want you to imagine sitting down at the dining room table 
of the Melton family with the kids and the grandkids present, making your case for intoxication. How do you think that would go? One function or product of righteous indignation is it helps keep us away from the behaviors that offend God and ruin lives. If I get comfortable with sin and gradually lose my outrage and my hatred of sin, I open myself to the devil and temptation enters easily. Moral outrage helps us maintain moral purity. If somebody didn't get it, moral outrage helps us maintain moral purity. And so it is a good and necessary question. Where is our outrage? If God's wrath is clearly against it, shouldn't I be clearly against it? I not only refuse to be a part of the practice, I oppose it, and I pray people who are guilty will repent and give an opportunity I beg them to. I heard someone say the other day, we need moral imagination. No, we need moral outrage. We need moral indignation. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. And listen, please, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. What does this say that we ought to be doing? Did you hear this? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Others, If I'm persuaded of the wrath of God, that's good for me. If I'm persuaded of His wrath, that's good for me. But what is more is to tell others, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Moral outrage. Let's be standing as we sing. I